everybody. We are here again for another She Rocks Global episode in Cape Town already. Thank you for to the U.S. Council American Corner to receive us. And today we have uh, we are so privileged to have the visit of Asanda Wajeng. I hope I pronounced that correctly. You will do it better than me. Uh, well, she's a rock star. She's a public speaking uh, award winning. She's an entrepreneur. She's an academic. And also she's a diversity expert. Welcome to our show. Thank you for being here. Uh, we will always ask people to introduce themselves briefly. We, we believe you would be a better introducer of yourself. So please go ahead. Um, hello, my name is Asanda Mwasheng. I am a South African-based... Um, I like to call myself a disruptor um, because like, I think that's the one way that encompasses... Um, who I am and everything that I do. So it's really what I try and do is um, it's it's peacemaking, but like not in a conventional sense. So in in international relations or conflict management, you've got th three theories. One is you've got uh, you've got conflict management, which is about like just managing the conflict so that it doesn't break out too much and then you've got uh, the second theory which is conflict resolution which is about just stopping the the conflict and then you've got the third one which I quite prefer which is called transformational uh, transformational conflict like sorry I've just forgot transformational conflict resolution essentially or transforming the conflict which is really about getting to the root and getting to the depth of the conflict and trying to understand it before you can manage it before you can resolve it and before you can try and bring solutions so a lot of the work that I do is around looking at the South African problem of race and the problem of our history of colonialism and our history of apartheid and saying exactly what happened when did it happen how did it happen in order for us to be able to get to an understanding so that we can transform the conflict and shift it in ways that um, when we when we're done with the work of, of, of transforming the conflict, there will be no need for conflict management or for conflict resolution because a conflict or its roots will be removed. And that's what I sort of aim for. And it's quite a controversial thing because, you know, a lot of people want people who are bridge builders. And I always say, again, I'm a disruptor because I, I believe in breaking down bridges and then building bridges together. Because when you come and you try and lend a hand to bridge building without understanding what it is that this bridge is supposed to be for and what it is that this piece is supposed to be for, then you're going to build something that later on you're going to regret, which is exactly what happened in our country, South Africa as well, in the post-94 era. Wow, that sounds so huge. Like uh, Maka and I are currently in Cape Town for around, I think, currently 10 days. And although we knew something about South African history, we really, re oh, it's okay, the bottle fell. But we realized how much we didn't know and how many layers it has. So it's, I assume uh, it's not by accident that you are here because what you are talking about, maybe in some countries, it's one, uh, two groups against each other. Or uh, But this goes way deeper and it's much more complex. So maybe I can just drift away from the um, talk about you and because we are trying and our audience is a global one, you might be the perfect person who can shortly and briefly explain when you talk about uh, transformation of the conflict, what is really the, what are all the layers and what is that conflict that exists in South Africa? 
Well, the conflict that exists in South Africa is that we have a history of, uh, so we have a history as an entire continent and, and world of colonization, which is when people mainly from Europe came to Africa and basically divided up the continent for each other and for themselves. We were colonized by um, the English and we were also colonized by the Dutch. Mm-hmm. And out of that English and Dutch colonization came a group which then came to be known as Afrikaners, which had Dutch origins but believed themselves to be natives to um, South Africa because they spoke a language or a dialect that could only be found on this here South African soil. Um, and so out of colonization, while we were recovering from colonization, we then became victims of a system called apartheid, which was essentially colonization to the power of 100. Because essentially what the system said did is that it legalized. So racism always existed. Discrimination always existed. Uh, black people have been used as labor before. But what, what the, the system of apartheid did is that it then created a hierarchy of humanity. And at the top of that hierarchy was the white man. And then you had the Indian man. And then you had the colored man. And then right at the bottom, you had the black man. And the whole entire point of, of, of creating this hierarchy of difference was that you want, the, 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 there was a, a very express intent to create a system that ensured that because white people in South Africa are the minorities, so or even to this day less than 10%, um, you cannot really control, you know, 80, 90, 90, 90% of the population as 10% of the population. So what do you do? You divide the 90%. And so there was a division between the Indian or separated from the from the colored so that, uh, you know, the 80% majority black would then be in a system where not only were they oppressed by you know, uh, white people, but the white people were would be then in cohorts with the Indians and the and the coloreds, who would then get small benefits, which were never, of course, mm-hmm. equal to the benefits that the white people got. But they got little a, a little window mm-hmm. into freedom, and they were allowed, you know, quite big, but also quite small things. So, like uh, black South Africans in this country could not or were not considered to be citizens. So they needed something called a Dompas, which allowed them to move around. Whereas uh, our Indian and our colored counterparts, they did have South African identity documents and they could move around, not fully free in the same way that the white citizens could, but in a, in a, in a slightly freer way. And so in creating the system of, of, uh, of uh, or hierarchy of humanity, what you then find is that you find a population of people who very explicitly had different experiences of the same oppression. So we are all oppressed as people of color, but we are oppressed in different ways. And so the ways in which we engage with the system and the ways in which we were oppressed then had an impact for how we thought about and how we felt about the system. And this system seems like, you know, it, 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 was, it was from 1948 until 1994, but to this day, that hierarchy of humanity still exists. It is still the white man at the top and then the Indian and the colored and then right at the bottom you have you know the black person that's that's the system that's still there it's entrenched in everything that we do and and of course what what, what apartheid was really good at doing was that very early on in 1913 this was during colonization the land of south africa was divided such that black people only had access to 70 percent of the land and uh sorry just to to um they only had access to 77 percent of the uh, to 13% of the land. Sorry, I'm switching it around. So the the, the, the 1913 uh, Land Act meant that 
black people only had access to 13, so 1-3% of the land. And the white people had access to 77% of the land. So essentially what you're doing is you're taking 80% to 90% of the population and you're putting them mm-hmm. on a minority of the land and you're taking the minority of the people and you're putting them on majority of the land. And to this day, apartheid still determines the ways in which the majority of South Africans live everything from where they where they live, where they go to school, you know, the, the, the their kind of economic prospects and all of those things because all of these things were legislated and we lived and we had a system in this country where people could not be neighbors as people of different races and white people lived in their own area and black people lived in their own area and colored people lived in their own area and Indian people lived in their own area and if the apartheid system had anything to do with never shall the four meet and that's how the system was and that's why for me I'm obsessed with you know trying to understand the system and the ways in which it entrenched itself because I believe when you try to solve a conflict without understanding the very root and the very genesis of it, then you run the risk of replicating it. And so what we want to try and do is not necessarily to just take the black man and put him at the top and recreate another hierarchy of humanity, but what we want is to create, you know, a system of equality in this country so that every man, every child, every woman, no matter their race, has access to the same economic opportunity and has access to the same land resources of this country and is able to re- really enjoy this beautiful country called South Africa and in particular this beautiful piece of the country called Cape Town which currently does not belong and currently is not a place that a lot of black people feel like they can call their own or feel like they can be free and to this day. Wow. wow. Thank you for this. I think it, it it was short but very deep which we appreciate. And coming back to that question and maybe also coming back to your role about all of this, what is the position of black women now in South Africa? Well, I mean, the the, the black women, if you think about the hierarchy of humanity, I, I started off with men because our system, you know, we live in it like, any, mm-hmm. like anywhere in the globe, we live in a patriarchal white supremacist system. And so it prioritizes men. And if you think about it, you in this country in particular, you've got the white man at the top and then you've got the Indian man and then you've got the colored man and then you've got the black man. And then you've got the white woman, you've got the Indian man, you've got the colored, uh, the, sorry, the colored woman, the, the Indian woman, the colored woman. And then you've got the black woman. And so the black woman really is at the bottom, 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 bottom of this hierarchy of humanity. And that has implications for so many things because not only are we oppressed by the system from a from a, from a racial perspective, but we're also oppressed by the system from a gender perspective. And so not only are we oppressed by the system in terms of, so we're being oppressed by white men, by Indian men, by colored men and by black men. And then we're being oppressed by, you know, a white woman and being oppressed by Indian women and being oppressed by colored women. So that by the time you get to, you know, the status of being a black woman in this country, it's 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 really quite dire. And a lot of people don't understand that because you sit at the intersection of race and you sit at the intersection of gender, you really find yourself having to hold and having to carry this entire nation's burden in every way and in every sense because you and if I mean if you understand um, you know feminist theory you'll understand that you know those who bear the biggest brunt of any so if there's economic strife it's 
it's women. But in this case, it's generally black women. If there is a crime and lack of safety like there is in this country, the people who bear the biggest brunt of that, it's going to be black women. If there is any social upheaval of any kind, whether you're talking about, you know, migration or even if you're talking about refugee status, for instance, uh, you know, some of the most vulnerable people in this country are, are black and refugees, you know, uh, and, 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 and they, they struggle to a certain extent, uh, almost, I mean, even even black women who are not migrants struggle quite a lot. But obviously, being a refugee then adds that sort of extra layer of vulnerability. And so the, the, the status of black women is something that really breaks my heart every time that I, I think about it. But it's also one of the things that really motivate me to keep going and to keep talking and to keep having these conversations and to keep entering spaces and disrupting so that people don't forget that we exist and that we are, you know, we are in the positions that we're in and we find ourselves in a system that we're in, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to give up and it doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, stop fighting just because some of us may find ourselves in in spaces that are more economically um, comfortable than others. Uh Thank you for this. And as you were saying that, I felt like looking at you, talking about it, that your one word description, because when Maka introduced you, there were several hats that you are wearing. And I'm sure there are some more which we didn't mention yet. But I feel like if there was one word for you, I would say it was a disruptor because it's not only the topic you are dealing with, but because also you are a black woman trying to solve this um deeply complicated issues and trying to bring a special perspective on it. So so I thank you for the, that and please keep on uh, talking about it. But maybe let's go now to your personal uh, story and how does that look share how does that look to be a black woman talking about these topics in South Africa? And also, there is interesting, Maka and I were talking prior to talking with you, that both professions that you are working in, uh, journalism and academia, they are both, uh, there are a lot of women in both of these areas, but on top are still mostly men, which also brings a different balance, unlike, for example, in tech, where you don't have them at almost at all. So share how does it look uh, and how did you made uh, where you are? Well, I mean, the, I think I think the first thing for me is um, I've always been, I've always been somebody who was, um, you know, who who wanted to fight for the rights of women because I grew up in a in quite a matriarchal family. I grew up with my grandmother and and my mother and my aunts all in the same house until you know at some stage. I think when I was about twelve, then my mom moved and lived by herself. So I've always been surrounded by women and I've always, by virtue of being surrounded by women, I've always understood women's issues. And um, how I got into journalism really is that my grandmother used to love listening to the show at midnight, which was quite a political show. And one of the things I really loved about that show is that uh, it's called Twelfth Down and it's really just a call-in show for any and everybody. So you get everybody from, uh, you know, from a truck driver to a sex worker to like any kind of profession, but you also have people who have ordinary jobs who sleep and then wake up in order to wow. be able to to listen to the show at midnight. And I quite like that it always had such provocative topics and I quite like that anybody's opinion was valued and, and people would thrash out issues and people would debate issues and men and women. I mean, obviously, not as many women callers, but men and women would call in. And uh, it was really great 
a great sort of bonding time as well with my grandmother because I was able to then start having these conversations and be able to get a, a better sense of understanding of, you know, what it means to be a woman and why some topics seem to be taboo and why less women were calling in and, and all of these things. That's how I got interested in in journalism because I, I kind of got a sense of, of uh, journalism and I think politics as well because I kind of got a sense of there, there, was, a, there was a need to... To, to represent women's voices and there was a need to include more women in, in politics and to have more women talking about the issues that are happening to them and to have more women, you know, voc being vocal and advocating and, and actively fighting against, you know, the system of patriarchy and then and, and trying to break it down and trying to, even if you're not going to break it down tomorrow, but at least men must know that we're not just sitting being comfortable with the oppression that is being handed down to us, you know. And so that's how I... I sort of got into it and I think for for me it's always been important that uh you know that that every that, that I have a voice and 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 I grew up in a family as I said of of women so my my mom and my dad were never married but my dad was quite an involved parent and I think both my parents even though it irritated them a lot of the times they actually spent quite a bit of they invested quite a lot in in having conversations with me and allowing me to actually have a voice and I mean I remember I used to have so many arguments with my dad and I used to have so many arguments with my mom but like back then I used to get so irritated with them and I think oh my god these people are so backwards and they're so like strict but like when I talk to other people how they grew up I only realized now that I'm older that actually like my parents were amazing at allowing me to debate issues because in other people's homes there weren't even debates it was just like this is what's going to happen and that's it and and my parents used to allow me to have those debates and and also having spent a lot of time with my grandmother even though she was quite strict she also allowed me to have you know quite quite a lot of conversations and quite a lot of debates with her and 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 she actually i think inspired me to 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 think very deeply about indigenous knowledge systems, to think very deeply about feminism, like a, a, a very sort of grassroots grounded type of feminism that's uh that's different to the kind of feminism that 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 we that we have right now but i think it's just as impactful and is just as as important and i think that you know being being somebody who was surrounded by women um it always you know gave me the confidence and always made me feel like i could have a voice like i could say stuff that people yes. would listen to <laughs> and so like you know i've basically been talking ever since i was a child and i've just never stopped and because i grew up in a home that encouraged that you know and in a, in a, in a community in a society that didn't necessarily encourage women mm -hmm. and young girls speaking um it was very easy for me to then be able to do that on a on a, on a bigger platform by becoming a political analyst by becoming a lecturer and 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 teaching students about political reporting and and journalism and also working in the media industry because you know I had this grandmother and I had this family who always supported me and who always allowed me to have this voice. Just one brief question uh, before I know Maka is waiting to ask you something else, but just one brief thing. Uh, you came from a family that obviously respected your voice. Did it happen when you in, got engaged into journalism, academia, research? Did it happen uh, that you felt like somebody is not respecting your voice because of color of your skin or your gender? And how did you overcome it? 
Well, I mean, it, it happens all the time. I mean, it's literally <laughs> like being a black woman is basically that's that's your existence. Like every day, try, somebody's trying to, you know, undermine what you have to say. Somebody's trying to question what you have to say, question your credibility, question your credentials, question whether you know your facts, question your even like audacity to actually stand there and actually think that you have a voice. And uh, and 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 for me, how how I deal with it is because I mean, for me, like I said, because I come from this family that's always supported me. Uh, I've, I've, I've never been in a position where my family made me feel like the stuff I had to say was frivolous. So when I encountered, and I mean, this is even before I joined journalism, even before I joined the, the academic space, I'd, I'd, I'd have people back at university who'd be like, you're always talking politics. Like, don't you get bored? Like, why do you think you know everything? And people would always have something, you know, negative to say. But for me, like, I didn't care because I was like, well, I have these opinions and, uh, you know, good for you that you don't care about politics. But actually, politics affects your every living and breathing moment. So if you don't want to care about that, I'm so happy for you, but I'm going to continue, you know, using my voice to speak and I'm going to continue using my my God-given ability to string two sentences together <laughs> to actually, you know, bring about change in the world. Yeah. Wow. I'm so grateful for this conversation. Uh, definitely you have a voice, a disruptive voice, uh, and you're so passionate about it. We love it. Thank you. Uh, but apart from your family, that actually, as you shared with us, it was the key for your success or for you having this disruptive voice. Who else uh, backed you or supported you during this journey? Um, well, I mean, I think I think a couple of people. So I think one of the one of the, the first people. So when I was in primary school, I was lucky enough to have a lot of teachers who obviously encouraged this voice as well. When I was like, I think it's called grade four now. I was to, I was like the best student in the entire grade, and I was chosen to actually have a little speech that I was gonna do at the at the grade four farewell. And those are the kind of things that really like develop my confidence in my own ability to do public speaking and my own ability to form opinions and also to like engage people and, and sort of keep an audience captive. And then when I moved to, so I, I moved to a so-called white school, which was what was then. So because in South Africa, we have the system that we have, there were schools that were previously for white kids. And I joined the school and I met really amazing women who was also my teacher who was a, back then what was called an academic support developer. And her job was to help us as ch children who were coming from, from township schools um, having to get into this former white system, which, you know, the quality of education was quite vast and quite different. And what you had to do was literally get in and be plugged in and, and keep pushing. And so her role was to help us to help identify where the gaps were in the education that you were coming with and also help us with uh, doing a lot of reading and a lot of, and basically just like boost our understanding of, of, of English and the way in which we understood grammar, et cetera, et cetera, and all of those things. So she was really great because she then sort of helped me get a confidence in the language, which I, I had because, I mean, I'd used English a little bit, but obviously not at the level that was required because I was going from, you know, speaking Kosa 24-7 and then speaking English sometimes to having to speak English now 24-7 to think in it, which is, it's not my native tongue. And so it was quite, something that was quite difficult to do. And so her encouragement for us to read, her encouragement for us to come to her when we had issues in terms of, um, you know, both the, the content, but also the context of the school, because it was a completely different context. That really helped me a lot um, because it made me feel like no matter where I was, Uh, if I felt different, it was actually okay. There was nothing wrong with that. And she helped me to understand, you know, the system and how the system worked that I was in and, and why certain things were happening the way mm -hmm. that 
you know, they were happening. And then I also had another teacher in, in high school who really, she taught English, but I mean, I think, I feel like she taught feminism with an English um, addition to it <laughs> because, you know, she spent a lot of time trying to get us to understand what it means to be a girl and 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 what it means to be a girl in this world and, and what it means to have a voice as a girl in this world and why it's important for us to, like, continue to use our voices and why it's important. I mean, she used to, like, be so encouraging both in terms of, because she was also, like, the coach for public speaking and the coach for debating. So she encouraged us in terms of public speaking, in terms of debating, in terms of also writing. And so all of the things that I would I would need in the future, which are public speaking, debating, and also writing were developed and groomed in the class and, and and sort of encouraged. And then when I went to university, I also happened to have amazing lecturers in politics who sort of, you know, helped me with my passion for politics. And then when I went into the working world, I always was lucky. And I think to this day, I still am lucky in that I would always find all the women who were willing to mentor me, who were willing to sort of show me the ropes and who were willing to engage me on what it means to be in X system. And it was always hilarious for me because obviously I'm such a disruptor. I'd always <laughs> inevitably disrupt something. And sometimes they would be quite uncomfortable with some of the stuff that I wanted to do or some of the stuff that I said. But they always managed to find ways to hold space for me even when they didn't necessarily agree with me. And that was very important for me. So I've always been held by women. I think that that's that for me has been my key sort of power. Yeah. Wow, you are a disruptor. You are also disrupting our plan for this interview, and we love that. <laughs> and well, we need to grab up. I would really would like to spend the whole day with you, but we have uh, some a couple of more questions. What holds you back? Uh, sorry, and first of all, I really want that lady that was so important to you. I really hope she knows that she was a key supporter person for listen. you, and that she would listen this interview. What holds you back? Well, what holds me back? I think. Oh, Well, I think before I speak about what holds me, I have to talk about what, what inspires me. So what in, what inspires me, obviously I've said, I've always been somebody who is against prejudice, but I think ever since I've, I've had kids, I really, really then developed a sense of urgency around change and bringing to bring about, needing to bring about change because for me it was like I'm not going to allow my children to grow up in the same world that I grew up in and to have to fight the same struggles. Mm -hmm that I had to fight as a woman, as a person of color, you know, as a young person, because there's also ageism that yeah. we don't talk about a lot. Um, so for, for me, what, what holds me back is, 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 is what holds me back. And I think what really makes me sad is, is when I'm in the company of, of people of color who don't see the work that I do as important, who don't understand why we need to do the work that we do because they have been systematically oppressed for so long that they've internalized the messages. It's being around women who don't understand why we need women's liberation, mm -hmm. who think that the world that we live in is, is just fine. That really, 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 like, brings me down and it really, really holds me back. And it, it's really something that... Um, I've actually told myself that, you know, in the year 2020, I want to actually spend a lot more time working with with women on our internalized oppression and also working with with people of color in general on our internalized oppression as well. Because I think, you know, I, I spend quite a bit of time working with white people and getting them to understand what it means to be a person of color. But I want to invest a lot more time now on on working with people of color in general, specifically, mm -hmm. you know, to, to get us to understand the ways in which we hurt each other and the ways in which we... We harm each other. And, and of course, the other thing that holds me back is time because, you know, there's only 24 <laughs> hours. There's only 24 hours in a day. And as much as, like, I try to, like, do a hundred things, like, anybody that, that knows me will tell you I'm always doing, like, a million things. But I, I love it like that. But, you know, obviously, sometimes, you know, you've got time constraints, so you can't do everything that you want to do. 
And I think that's uh, very important. When we were preparing and talking with you shortly before this interview, uh, I mentioned we don't want uh, to showcase superwomen in this interview. And you laughed and you said, ha, 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 don't worry. It was like, I'm not a superwoman. But when I hear you talk, there is a lot of things you are doing, a lot of things you are managing. And just for everybody else who listens and for Maka and me, it would be good to... to share with us what is something that you are not managing right now? Well, the one, I mean, the one thing that I'm always like, I'm always learning uh, and I really struggle with this and it frustrates me so much because I feel like I'm so good at so many things. Um, it's like learning to say no. You know, this idea that like, uh, like I've, I've, I've started trying to to implement this idea that, you know, every time I say yes to somebody, I mustn't be saying no to myself mm-hmm. um but it's still it's it's like such a struggle to like you know to say no and to because I, I feel like I'm I'm such a generous person and my natural instinct is to always want to help and to always want to say yes but I'm I'm learning as I grow older and I mean obviously like it's it, the lesson gets bigger and bigger as you grow older but I'm learning to say no I'm learning to create more boundaries I'm learning to say I don't have capacity right now I wish I could let me let me you know find somebody else who has a capacity I'm learning like also that you cannot you cannot uh, you cannot work from an empty uh, an empty well you cannot fill up other people from an empty well and so like I'm becoming increasingly what a lot of people call selfish but it's really it's not selfish it's just that we're trained as women to think of it as being selfish I am increasingly self-loving that's what I, I, I've, I've decided it is now I'm increasingly self-loving I'm increasingly yeah. prioritizing myself and it's such a difficult thing to do when you you know you have a husband you've got kids you've got relatives you've got students you've got mentees you've got so many people who depend on you but I'm like you know if I I have to like switch the world off for an hour in order for me to be able to continue to function that's what I do I've always I've always loved sleeping I love sleeping but like as I as I get older the one thing that you know um, my sister is even like that's your superpower you know that is like I can nap for 30 minutes I can nap for an hour <laughs> I can nap for two hours and for me it's like such a powerful thing because it, like sleep really re-energizes mm-hmm. me and so when I can't sleep, then I'm really cranky. And also, like, I've learned to, like, nourish myself in terms of food because I, I get hangry. Oh, I, I hate it. But I'm one of those people that if I'm hungry, then I'm angry. Then I just get hungry and angry, which you call hangry. <laughs> so I've learned to, like, manage, you know, my need to eat, manage my need to sleep. Because if, if I haven't slept enough, if I haven't eaten enough, then there's a problem. And so my whole entire life, actually my whole entire schedule is built around that so I don't get the kids ready in the morning my husband together with our housekeeper gets my kids ready in the morning so that I can sleep because I, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm a night owl so I, I work mm-hmm. quite late into the night and then they go off to sleep they go off to, to you know to, to school I I stay at home and I work and then when it's time for my kids so my kids finish school at about half past three then I stop everything that I'm doing and I go fetch my kids and then I spend about an hour two hours with them then we do supper time so our entire schedule as a family is built around seven o'clock seven o'clock is our is our eating time and nothing will shift this thing, okay? So it's one of those things that, like, we've made it a rule. We sit around the table, we eat at 7 o'clock, come hell or high order. So that's that's another thing that really grounds me. Like, my kids know that mommy's there at that time. And I even I know when I'm not at home, 
I can't call at that time because it's our sacred time. We have a rule, no phones allowed at the table. As in like, you can't even put your phone on the table. It must not be visible. And so I think those are the things that sort of keep me sane. And also another one, which like, I know a lot of mothers struggle with like uh, the fact that bedtime because you have to bath kids it can take two hours it can take three hours when I initially with my with my first daughter I used to do bedtime I used to put bedtime bath and used to do the whole routine I actually cut up bath time we do not bath mm-hmm. at night we only bath in the morning because I realize it's like three hours and I'm it's the end of the day I'm exhausted I really just don't have it in me mm-hmm. So what we do now is um, we do supper time and then from supper time we go to bed and I read to them and then we go to sleep in the morning. That's when they wash. And then every once in a while I'll do like an evening nice relaxing bath time. But I just find that like just that one action removes so much anxiety and so much like stress from my life because I was like at the end of the day when I'm at my lowest in terms of energy and I'm having to give this energy to my kids and I find that just by removing that the amount of energy that I'm able to give my kids now is a completely different kind of energy and and, and it works for us I mean I don't know if it works for other people but it works for us and I'm I'm happier for it and I think my kids are happier for it because I think you know a happy mom equals to a happy home because as a mother if you're miserable your husband's going to be miserable your kids are going to be miserable mm-hmm. so for me I'm I'm always about like what can I do in my life to cut out stress to cut out you know uh, the anxiety of like trying to stay and step every day and and I always try and do whatever works for me so there's a lot of things that work for a lot of people that don't work for me and I've just decided like that's not gonna work for me I'm not gonna do it if it works for me then that's what I do it and that's how I try to live my life essentially Wow, thank you. This is a great wrap-up, and we will finish this. But I think just to conclude what what we've heard now is, and I think it's very important that the pressure, there is no right way to do things. We should find the right way based on our schedule and when we feel good. So I I thank you for sharing uh, your uh, view on that. And we now entered the time when you should already be picking up your kids and being with your family. So we thank you for uh, staying with us and thank you for coming and we will let you go. But if you have one last thing you want to say, which we didn't cover, now is your time. Well, I mean, I think the the, the one message that I really would love every single woman in the world to know is that like you are enough just as you are with all your perfections, with all your imperfections, with all your deficiencies and nobody should ever make you feel like you are not enough and uh, the other thing really is that like as women we need to like take care of ourselves first because if we don't take care of ourselves then everything is going to fall apart and we have to constantly like fight to prioritize ourselves because I feel like a lot of the time we're fighting to to, like prioritize other people but actually fight to prioritize yourself and then you'll be able to Mm -hmm. serve and help so many people yeah and I because I do a lot of work particularly with with women activists who work in in some of the most underrepresented underrepresented uh, and underserved communities and what I found is that a lot of the women activists particularly are exhausted because they keep giving and giving and giving and they never have time to themselves yes. so I just feel like whether you're a middle class woman a working class woman any kind of woman that you are let's prioritize ourselves let's put ourselves first let's take care of ourselves so that we can take care of the world thank you 
My heart is full. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you for this conversation. It was amazing. Thank you to the American Corner. Thank you, T. Craig, for being there in the controls. Thank, Thank you very you, much. Lisa, measuring the time. Thank we love you. you. Bye-bye. She Rocks Global is a podcast collaboration produced by Macarena Bota from Uruguay, Noavisa Mayema from South Africa, and Zoya Kukic from Serbia. This season of She Rocks Global was recorded at the American Corner in Cape Town, South Africa, which is also where you will find our sound engineer Tikre Kikana. The music for this podcast was composed and arranged through a collaboration between South African musician Nosihe and Hannah Sikasa from Germany. Mixing engineer was T. Luminous. She Rocks Global is a podcast that showcases the stories of perfectly imperfect women from all across the globe. Should you be one or know someone whom you think we should be talking to, please let us know. You can find us in Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook through our handle at SheRocksGlobal, hashtag SheRocks. Until next time, keep rocking!